0: Hello and welcome to The Urbanist, Monocle's programme all about the built environment. I'm your host, Andrew Tuck. This week, we're up in the Swiss Alps as government, business and civil society descend into the town of Davos for this year's World Economic Forum. With more than 80% of global GDP generated in cities, it's crucial that urban leaders are involved in the conversation to ensure a more sustainable, resilient future.
1: The level of thinking and dialogue that's happening here, I think, is something that is unparalleled anywhere else.
0: We'll hear from the CEO of Heinz, Laura Heinz-Pierce, about how real estate sits at the intersection of all the trends happening globally. Then we turn to our roads and talk about mobility with Spain's former foreign minister, Arancha Gonzalez, and decongestion with Dallas Mayor Eric Johnson. Plus... We sit down with Pritzker prize winner Francis Kere about blending tradition with modernity and the importance of having a sense of place in every project.
2: It's about uh, knowledge, ancient knowledge, it's about tradition, it's about experience in making things and that is what is important to me to always pay attention to places. And we'll
0: hear how Danish manufacturer Velux is putting community building first and taking a human approach to what makes a home. That's all coming up in the next 30 minutes, so let's cross over to Davos and join Monocle's Carlotta Rebello for today's episode. This is The Urbanist.
3: Cities are increasingly on the front lines of global challenges, so it's no wonder that the future of our urban environments was high on the agenda across multiple discussions happening here at the 54th annual meeting of the World Economic Forum in Davos. The way our cities are planned and built plays a pivotal role in shaping how we all live. And at the intersection of all of this sits one particular sector, real estate. Heinz is one of the largest privately held real estate investors and managers in the world, and being present here at WEF is crucial in order to be an active player in the conversation. Laura heinz Pierce is the co-CEO of Heinz, and David Steinbach is their chief investment officer. I spoke to them earlier and started by asking Laura about her first impressions of WEF so far.
1: The level of thinking and dialogue that's happening here, I think, is something that is unparalleled anywhere else. You know, certainly as a global investment manager in real estate with 100 billion in AUM, we are very focused about how real estate sits at the intersection of all the trends happening globally and where those are moving in the future. We see real estate and the built environment essentially as the rails on which. Our entire lives run, and we're constantly looking at what is coming above the tree lines and how are we investing for the future. And so the dialogue that happens here is at the forefront of that.
3: Now, David, you were nodding along there, and when we talk about investment, that is something that we know is changing when it comes to real estate. Can you elaborate for our listeners a bit more on that and just how that is changing?
4: Yeah, sure, and I'll use a skiing analogy since we're here in the the mountains with snow. Yeah, no, look, the last 40 years, it's been a downhill ski journey of interest rates coming down, and that was a certain style of investing. Frankly, it, it was speed was highly valued and it covered over a lot of execution mistakes, frankly, along the way because you had cap rates that were moving down along with interest rates. Now in this new environment that we're in, I would describe it more as cross-country skiing where even if rates tick down a little bit, we're in a higher for longer, much different environment than we were before. And so in our minds, that style of investing is different. And moving from the search for beta to the search for alpha generation, alpha generation for us is local execution in real estate. And that's hard work. But those that have great operating platforms can do that really well.
3: Now, there's been a bit of conversation that has moved on since the pandemic about, you know, the future of our downtowns and how really, of course, the real estate market took a hit as people retreated and then everyone is still kind of figuring out where we are, even though it already feels like a lifetime ago. But I'm curious about, we were mentioning trends earlier and energy is a big one and this concern for sustainability and for ethic development. How does that shape into high This narrative, and are you seeing that from the people that you are speaking to here at Davos? This concern for you know energy transition, decarbonization, really having climate concerns at the top of the agenda.
1: This is absolutely a moment for our built environment, for our cities, for our urban centers to rethink how they are coming together for the next 50 years for the next 100 years. And that creates an opportunity. While it's been a moment of challenge, I think it's also an opportunity. And, you know, as Heinz, we've always had sustainability at the forefront of who we are. My grandfather, our founder, was a mechanical engineer by trade. And that's something that's really built into our DNA. And so we are constantly thinking about how we're moving the industry in that direction. We've committed to a net zero 2040 operational zero carbon for our portfolio and, you know, are really now taking it a step further to look at the embodied carbon of real estate and bring that into, you know, our development expertise as well. The conversation here has, I'd say, reinforced our view that sustainability is no longer a separate issue that everyone needs to be focused on and rather a central function of the way that you just have to think about investing. It has to be a core tenant of the way you look at any investment moving forward. And that's been the way we've been thinking, certainly for our history.
3: Now demand for urban last mile delivery is growing with 36% more delivery vehicles expected on our city roads by 2030. This means cities are working hard to reduce emissions and congestion working on better mobility solutions as Arancha Gonzalez Spain's former foreign minister told me
5: yeah huge dialogues on decarbonizing the automobile sector with this idea that is not just about the vehicles themselves but it's about the whole of the value chain and that it's not just about the manufacturers but that it is about ecosystems lots of very interesting discussions here from uh, auto producers to battery producers to material producers to a dialogue between manufacturers and policy makers also to ensure that the policies circularity, end of life uh, policies, uh, greed support the deployment at scale of solutions so that mobility can be also part of the solution to decarbonizing our economies. And do you feel
3: like in that conversation there's engagement from all sectors, public, private, NGOs, national and local leaders or is there still some bridge building to happen?
5: I mean I think there is a bit of order that is needed. This is another example of where international cooperation can help, where standards at the international level at the global level can help, where policies, best practices scaled up at the global level can help, in order to, through this global approach, make sure that we move faster and in a more efficient manner in decarbonizing the auto, the mobility sector that the automobile represents. One
3: city known for its automotive past is the American city of Dallas. Its mayor, Eric Johnson, is part of a delegation of city leaders here in Davos, meeting with counterparts, corporations and civil society leaders. He joined me to explain why the world should be paying attention to Dallas.
4: When I first became mayor, I said that I wanted to make sure that when I was done being mayor that Dallas was on the global stage. I feel like Dallas's reputation in some ways had been frozen in the 1980s with the TV show Dallas and the perception that people had of our city. Dallas has become a very, very vibrant, dynamic city that has a very diverse economy that is not based on oil and gas at all. It's actually based primarily on financial services and real estate, healthcare, technology, all the things I think are going to be a pretty important in the future of the United States economy. So, what I wanted to do was to make sure that we thought of ourselves first, not as some regional player or a leader in the Southwest, which we've been for a long time, but a global force to be reckoned with. So, I put together right out of the gate when I got elected an organization called the Mayor's International Advisory Council. It's all of the former. U.S. ambassadors who live in the city of Dallas. And we have several, including the last U.S. ambassador to NATO lives in Dallas. So ambassadors to Saudi Arabia, ambassadors to a lot of great and important places around the world. And they advise me on international affairs. And we've decided to really lean in hard on that. So within the past couple of years, we opened a trade office of the French government in our city. We've done a lot on the international affairs front. But the real push lately, as you alluded to, has been to get more corporations to invest in Dallas. And I'm here talking to a lot of foreign companies, of course, about foreign direct investment in the city of Dallas. And that's going to be a big focus of my time here.
3: Now, I know as well that there's a big push to turn Dallas into a global center for innovation. When we put an urbanism and cities lens, there's been a rise over the past five years, really, of urban innovation districts. Is this something that you are working on as well in Dallas? And what shape does innovation take when it comes to your city?
4: I think innovation was something that I, I talked about in my first inauguration speech in 2019. And we have experimented some with these innovation districts. And I think that became really sort of trendy uh, a few years back. But we view innovation not really as a trend in Dallas. It's really part of our DNA. It's a way of life for us. I don't think people know this about Dallas. In a lot of ways, I think people think of Dallas as a place where a lot of established large corporations are. Um, We definitely punch above our weight in terms of Fortune 500 companies. We have almost two dozen headquartered in the Dallas area. But Dallas is a place where a lot of great global brands started. We have this entrepreneurial spirit that the semiconductor was invented in Dallas at Texas Instruments. The aviation industry owes a lot to Dallas, and Southwest Airlines was created and started in Dallas, Texas. It's the third largest airline in the world. It started in Dallas. So we have had a long history of entrepreneurship and cultivating that attitude, But what we are trying to do is lean in on that and really get people to think of us more that way. So I actually created an entrepreneur in residence program at the city. We've come up with a startup kit to give to folks to help them understand how to grow and start small businesses. But really, small business is part of uh, who we are.
3: Now, you alluded there in the beginning about some of the sessions you are taking part in, one related to decongestion. And you also mentioned that part of your work as mayor has been to kind of change the reputation of Dallas. Now, when one thinks about mobility and urban quality of life, I think I'm not wrong in saying Dallas is not the first place that comes to mind. So how has that narrative changed over the years and over your mayorship? And what can we expect in the future? Because change doesn't happen overnight. It's been a long process and change often has pushed back from the community. So you are really championing urban mobility to improve quality of life for your residents. So talk to me about that journey.
4: That's right. And when Monaco came to Dallas a couple of years ago, we talked a little bit about the mobility issues related to Dallas. And you're right, look, Dallas is a city that was built for the automobile. And so it's a little bit ironic that I'm talking about decongestion, because you don't really think of Dallas as a city that's struggling with congestion. But I will say this, we're planning for a future where online shopping and and the delivery services associated with that are going to play a greater and greater role in creating more congestion. We're finding more vehicles are on the road now to satisfy everybody's demand for Amazon and online shopping and in grocery shopping and all those types of things. But looking back on the conversations we've been having, you know, Dallas is a city that was built for the automobile, and it's almost 400 square miles. I mean, it's a very large landmass. And so people have lived far apart for a long time. And we're trying to get people to rethink where they live and how they live. And so that means our central business district is getting a lot more focus. We want people living closer to where they work. And that's what we're finding younger people want anyway. And we're finding that's what the folks from places like, you know, Goldman Sachs is investing $500 million in a new downtown campus. They wanted it downtown. It's 800,000 square feet. It's going to be open in 2027. They're building it for their next generation of bankers who are saying, We want to live in a place like Dallas where we get that quality of life, that value, but we don't want to be in a suburban office park. We don't want to be in some outer ring suburb. We want to be in the heart of the city where we can walk to a basketball game, we can walk to a bar or restaurant, and then we can walk upstairs to our condo or apartment. And that's the kind of Dallas that we're building. And I think Goldman Sachs isn't in the business of making bad investments. That's not what they're there to do. And they have bet big on Dallas. So I think they are sort of proof of concept that we are on the right path when it comes to mobility and infill development.
3: Now, as journalists, often when we interview experts, if they have a, a book to plug, we ask them at the end a question about it. Being a mayor, this is your chance to give me the pitch for your city. So for listeners who might not be convinced by what we just discussed, which should be enough to uh, be a testament to the quality of life in Dallas and the forward-looking way you are approaching building the city, what is the pitch for Dallas then for those who have never visited?
4: Only top 10 city in America with three consecutive years of declining overall violent crime. The Dallas area created more jobs last year than 46 states in the United States. So just our area created more jobs than all but four states in this country. We're greening up our city at an incredible rate. This has been described as the golden era of parks under my administration. We are building parks so that there's not a single resident in our city that doesn't live within a 10-minute walk of a park or trail. We are well on the path to becoming that city and to be known for our beautiful green spaces. It's a very friendly city with a can-do attitude. Again, having two dozen to 500 companies, I think, says a lot about those companies are moving their operations to Dallas. And they couldn't do that if they didn't have a place where they could sell to their employees. They wouldn't make their employees upset by moving them to some place where they wouldn't have a higher quality of life. And so we're very proud of the environment that we've created in Dallas for folks to work, but also for them to play and to enjoy life. So, very, very proud of the work we've done. We've got an incredible airport that is very, very busy. It's the second busiest airport in the world. So very easy to get anywhere in the United States from Dallas, either coast, South America, Central America, Canada, North America. And then we have nonstop flights pretty much everywhere in the world you'd want to go. So it's just a wonderful place. And I think everybody should come give us a look and come visit.
3: Combining tradition and modernity can be a great way to achieve innovation while retaining a strong local identity. This is just one of the guiding principles behind the work of Pritzker Prize-winning architect Francis Carré. He joined me a bit earlier to talk about building culture and creating something with local materials and people.
2: For me, a place has a very important role in my approach in architecture. First, because of a tradition A place exists. And so if you want to succeed in this place, you're going to take under account the tradition, the culture. So if you absorb, if you understand this and learn from it and just let it become part of the construction, the building, the design, then you're going to succeed because you're building for people. And talking about people, it's about culture. It's about the place. It's about the territory. You know, it's about uh, knowledge, ancient knowledge. It's about tradition. It's about experience, you know, accumulated experience in making things. And that is what is important to me to always pay attention to places.
3: And it's not just tradition here in terms of the end result of how the building or the structure might serve its purpose to the community, but also from the very beginning of the project to involve local community in yeah. the building process, use local materials. Yeah. That all plays into this narrative.
2: Oh, yeah, of course. It's about participation. So if you get people be involved in the project, they feel it is their project. They will take easily ownership of the project rather than if you just come and you let it fall down like it's coming from the sky, you know. So like a parachute. I don't know if you could just use this word. And that is why it is really key to get people be part of a, a project from the beginning, through the conversation, through explaining the project itself, and getting them involved as far as possible in the design. But later, if you get people be involved in the making to create something that they're going to use later, then that is the best way to serve humanity.
3: Now, you were talking here today about kind of the duality within you, looking at your roots in Burkina Faso, but how you as an architect are a product of Western upbringing and education and kind of trying to combine those two at the beginning of your career, but I would assume still now sometimes that duality might still play a role. So talk to me about, you know, that challenge, I guess, of applying Western knowledge and techniques back home and how actually that can be an advantage because of your privileged standpoint of understanding both sides mm-hmm. rather than for lack of a better word a western foreigner being dropped in in a random location mm-hmm. without an understanding mm-hmm. a deeper understanding of place yeah.
2: so my education in the west is due to the fact that in Burkina Faso there was no architecture school and education in the west means you have very old and important structures that can just give you the tools of an architect, the training, the solid, very good training. This training is also universal, basically. From the ground, architecture training is giving you a broader view on design. And now, if you come from a place like, I'm coming from Burkina Faso, where climatically you have other conditions than in the West where economically is a total different conditions, and also socio-culturally is a very different situation than in the West you're gonna adapt. And that's what I have done. I have used these uh, solid education training that I had in the West, in Germany, to be able to really design something and try to use my experience from Burkina Faso on how people behave, how buildings behave, within the elements, or react within the element, and how people traditionally come together to really create a building. So I use all of these together to create something that fits within the needs of the people in my home country, Burkina Faso, and that is just the beginning of my career, and that's why it doesn't look like a, something foreign coming from outside, but it looked like it was done by the people for the people, because I involved them from the beginning of the work.
3: These principles of your practice are not just, of course, exclusive to the projects we've discussed so far, but guide your whole working philosophy. And one of the projects that, I guess, put you on the map in the West was when you were asked to do the Serpentine Pavilion in London. And, of course, the Pritzker Prize then came. The DAO here at the World Economic Forum were one of the Crystal awardees. And I guess I'm curious about, you know, the role that... Western recognition between inverted commas here and those prizes mean for you in the sense of amplifying your platform. What can you do now that you are a Prisker Prize winner (laughs) that you weren't able to do
2: before? So uh, let's say my work begins, let us call it very modest. Very modest because I started to build as a student. So it was not easy at all. So in this situation, I succeeded with the first building, but I keep using my capacity, my competence, and my uh, skills for the benefits of my people in the village, creating many, many other infrastructure. And suddenly I start to really be asked to do some work, first installation like you call it, the serpentine, but I also did some work in the U.S., and so it has arose certain visibility. At the beginning, I would go everywhere where you called me, and it was a passion to share, but also it was connected to looking for chances to be able to do more. And so you're going to run too much and even be involved in some projects that are taking a lot of time. And now with the Prisca, it is giving me just a big encouragement to keep going, to do what I'm doing, really, because it says what you're doing is good, keep doing it, but at the same time it is giving me the chance to choose. You know, I'm not going anymore everywhere. So I just do projects when they are relevant to me, relevant. And so it gives me a way to choose and not to try to be everywhere which is taking too much energy and time. So Priska has given me a chance to choose, but also a chance to be visible but to see people coming to me with a different request than before.
3: And I guess perhaps just finally, what are some inspirational thoughts or maybe some wisdom you could share with urban aficionados or young architects that you have learned through everything we've discussed so far throughout your career? What is something you could share with them for those starting out now that you wish you would have known when you began?
2: So having succeeded, With the way I have started to build and to see myself as having a role to play in the world of architecture, to become an example, if I have to advise a young professional, I will say, trust yourself. Please trust yourself. So if you have a project and you're working and it is hard and people don't understand you, you have to know because people don't know it has a potential to become something that is new something that can pave your career. So be resilient, keep pushing. It is easily said, it is hard, but at the end of the day, it pays because your effort will see shown success. In the world, there is a lot of people looking for new ideas, for fresh ideas, and if you keep pushing, they will soon discover you. That's what I have done. I came from a very little village in Gando. I started to build for this community, I didn't give a shit to even finish my study. Really, I wanted to stop because I had a big heart for my community. And I just did it. And nowadays, the world has recognized my work. And that is a great thing to really share with other people and encourage people. Go ahead. Don't give up. Be resilient. Try to innovate. Don't follow the mainstream. If you do so, you are many, many doing the same thing. And then you will never succeed.
3: One company that is also putting community building in focus is the Danish manufacturer Velux. A concept that has become reality through a new initiative called Living Places. I sat down with Velux's CEO Lars Petersen to learn more about the project.
6: I mean, we wanted to showcase what can be done already using existing technology. And there was from the beginning a community sense. How do you build a community? How do you build very sustainable? How do you build with a a carbon footprint? But how do you do that in a healthy way, which brings health to people? So bringing fresh air, bringing light into the construction. So we had a more holistic approach than others have done. And why are we doing this? Well, we want to inspire people to build better. This was a new build project, but the next project we'll do will be about renovation or refurbishing or repurposing using existing structure. That's sometimes the most sustainable option. is actually use something already existing. So... The idea was just to showcase the world what can be done with present technology if you allow the architects and the engineers the time to do it in a beautiful way.
3: Now, there was a few uh, core principles that emerged from when you were yeah. describing the work. Of course, sustainability, but also this idea that affordability and also being flexible and the Mm. idea that if you are making a place and building a place that is meant to be someone's home, that they need to be proud of and they need to be able to grow with it. Mm. So why were these some of the key pillars when approaching this project?
6: Yeah. We try to look about ourselves from a consumer point of view, from a homeowner, from anyone, you know, playing or working or living under a roof. this industry, we're part of the construction industry, doesn't always look from that angle. And if you take it from that angle, what do people need? They want beauty, they want health, they want flexibility in their living. Of course, they also want affordable buildings when young people move to the cities. And they want something which is truly sustainable in its true sense of the world. So that is why we came up with these criterias. It's actually quite obvious if you take it from a human-centric point of view, from an end-user point of view. And that's where we started. And that's actually what leads us. That's our purpose is to take it from an end user point of view.
3: Well, you mentioned then the human side of things, and this is anchored on community. And when we talk about urban living and quality of life, those seem to be key focus points for Velux as a company, not only in this project, but beyond. Mm-hmm. How are you addressing then that sense of community, of belonging in the work that you do?
6: We tried to show here, and I think it's so fundamental. You know, I brought my uh, kids to Istanbul; they were 26 and 29, and we came there with their, you know, loved ones, and I said, "I, I want to live here," you know, and you should be there, mom, and I should be here, you know. And that's something so fundamental. I think we want to be part of a community, we want to be part of something, and we just want to show how that can be done and inspire others to do that. And that can sometimes be missing in the built environment. So that is why we did it.
3: Now, you are taking this project of Living Places to Ukraine as part of a partnership. Tell me a bit more about that announcement.
6: So it's SOS Children Villages who have a project in Ukraine. We, of course, we have staff in Ukraine. We have a team there since a long time. They will be there forever. You know, we were there to stay. So we wanted to use our expertise. This project we did in Copenhagen is open source. I mean, we want to inspire others. We have already two building companies who are taking that source and taking it into their country. So... We wanted to help SOS Children Villages on their quest to find housing for destitute children in Ukraine. There is a huge need, but we also know from our Ukrainian staff that they want to build their country back better. So build it in a sustainable way, in a very affordable way, in a very community way. So we are offering our technology and our help.
3: And finally, we've put the spotlight on Mongolia and its capital, Ulaanbaatar. As a traditionally nomadic country, the rise of urbanization has posed a particular challenge for its people. But by putting building culture at the forefront of national identity, it has been able to create thriving living spaces. Nomin Shinbat is Mongolia's Minister of Culture, and she told me all about this duality.
7: Obviously, as a country, we were known as nomads. However, within the last 30 years, we've actually moved being just a nomadic country into urban and even more than actually really a metropolitan city. But because of the fact that there's about 3.5 million people, about 50% lives in one city. It probably will show you how incredible fast move it has been.
3: One of the things as well that came out was this idea of embedding culture, not only into urban planning itself, but also in some policy decisions. Mm -hmm. Talk to me a bit more about that movement, and you mentioned the culture pass, but this idea that culture and creative industries really can play a role not only in Ulaanbaatar, but in other cities Mm -hmm. to help promote this community feeling.
7: So, actually, culture is something that connects people, and the livable environment, being community, is really connecting people. So, in anything, you have to have culture at the heart of the policy making. As a country, we have an extremely strong history, and then on the other side, our cultural heritage is. Incredible, so making cultural heritage available to everybody, especially young generation, is key policy for Mongolia and uh, making sure that future creators we believe actually everyone is a creator. we believe everybody is productive in that sense, so making available of our heritage, making available of our traditional way of life, and creating new industry out of it is what is going to drive our nation in the future and then also put Mongolia on the map, on the world.
3: We are here at the Davos Baukultur mm-hmm. Alliance and you talked today about this building culture and how actually when it comes to Mongolia it is highly connected to national identity yes. and the pathway to creating thriving living mm-hmm. spaces. Mm-hmm. Could you elaborate on that?
7: If you think about it, when people think of Mongolia, they usually pops up the word Chinggis Khan, who was at that time inventor, at that time actually diplomat. So for us uh, in the future, a uh, country which is quite dependent on one industry, which is mining, in order for us to diversify away and then also bring uh, new uh, industries what really is the center is the culture and then building on culture and uh, actually making sure introducing our country through culture to the rest of the world and that leads to tourism industry all of this is all interconnected and uh, brought together uh, lives to people.
3: One other thing that also came out related to this idea of, you know, not only making these global connections, but also showing uh, Mongolia's urban prowess to mm-hmm. the world was also Ulan Batar just this December being added to the UNESCO Creative Cities Network. Talk to me about the power of being in this network mm-hmm. and what does that mean for the city practically? What are you able to unlock by being a member?
7: Yeah. As a country, we are actually very much evolved and also centered around our folk art, arts and crafts, and culture. And being part of UNESCO's network of cultural city is highlighting us to the world. To be honest with you, if you think about it, when there's a dialogue goes on, understanding each other's culture comes up. And once you understand each other's culture, there is a friendship, there is a, a network goes on. So using platforms like unesco it is important for us to showcase our country our city and then on the other side draw a lesson from what they have already learned and then bring a network of expertise to our country and use from that network and improve our livable spaces and the fact that our country is a very much centered around culture arts and crafts it is a imperative for us to make sure that it is known to the world.
3: Now, it's clear that cities can lead impactful transformation on the future of our world. Ensuring city advocates, local leaders and the private sector continue to have platforms to have open, honest discussions on how to achieve this will be key to create better cities for all in the years ahead. For Monocle at the World Economic Forum in Davos, I'm Carlotta Ribello.
0: Thank you, Carlotta. And that's all for this week's special episode of The Urbanist, coming to you from the World Economic Forum in Davos. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast at monocle.com or wherever you get your podcasts from. And while you're at it, why not subscribe to Monocle magazine too for regular reports on all things urbanism. Today's show was produced by Carlotta Robello and David Stevens. And David also edited the show. Thank you for listening, city lovers.